what what is it that we can do better here? I think just the answer to that is just about everything. Um, <laughs> the uh, let's start with legal services. We have to reimagine at least a part of the legal services market because we have a huge part of that market that is is virtually unserviced. Hello and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the Project Coordinator at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at Windsor Law. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the Director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And this week, and we should say this is our final episode of the year. Season finale. Yes, season finale. Don't worry, we will have more episodes uh, in the future, but this is, this is our wrap-up for now. And we're ending with a bang because, Julie, this week you're talking to former Supreme Court of Canada Justice Tom Cromwell. That's right. Uh, Tom Cromwell, who was appointed to head up the National Action Committee on Access to Justice and was a very significant part of its 2013 report, which we'll say a little bit more about later on. We're calling this episode, Are We There Yet? Tom Cromwell on Access to Justice. Tom, it's Julie McFarlane calling. How are you? Hello, Julie. How are you? Good, thank you. Good. And um, I want to just say thank you very much, indeed, for being willing to do this. I'm fascinated to uh, hear what you're going to say today, and I'm sure that listeners are going to be too. It's obviously something that uh, we all have to get used to, calling you by your first name again, but I'm going to try to set a good example here. So, oh, Excellent. I'm delighted. Good. So let's jump right in. You were appointed by uh, Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin to head up the National Action Committee on Access to Justice in 2012. And, and this was you know, a really important moment. Uh, and you were given, of course, this huge responsibility of heading up this group that was charged with improving access to justice for Canadians. And you know, let, don't worry, I'm not going to ask you whether you have now completed that task, but I do, want to, <laughs> I do want to ask you a little bit about what you think has been achieved since 2012 and, and obviously what remains to be done. And, you know, there has been, uh, you know, some of the people listening to this will be aware, others less so, a lot of activity, a lot of working groups and provincial meetings and so forth. But, of course, we all know there's a lot of work that remains to be done. So if you were asked by a member of the public today, what in the last six years do you think have been the most significant changes as a result of the work of the National Action Committee, what would you say? I think two or three things, Julie. Uh, number one is I think that uh, partly as a result of the work of the Action Committee, but undoubtedly because of the work of many others as well, there is now... Uh, at least a serious recognition that there's a major problem. Mm. When I mm. started into this work, um, my comments about my perception of the urgency and seriousness of the problem were frequently met with skepticism. Mm -hmm. And I, I do not get that uh, anywhere I go today, uh, really anywhere within the judiciary, within the bar, and certainly not within the public. And I know so would that, you say there's more of a sense of urgency? Is that is that 
I'm not sure we're quite there with the urgency, but we're certainly mm. there, I think, with the sense that the, there is a deep, deep and serious problem. Right. And, and that recognition has been uh, slow to come. Mm-hmm. Um, and although that, that sounds perhaps like not a great uh, achievement. Oh, I, I don't think, think so. <laughs> well, I think, though, that it is in this sense that all of the, the reading that I've done on change and what makes it happen or what makes it not happen is consistent on one point, and that is nothing can change until people think there's something wrong with the status quo. And I think we're at least there within the leadership of the justice system, and I think well beyond that. The second thing is that I think that we have made real progress in breaking down some of the silos. You'll recall from our 2013 report that we felt that the leadership of the of the system was too diffuse Yes, uh, and that people didn't people who who shared responsibility for the success or failure of the system didn't interact sufficiently. Right, absolutely. In many cases, yeah, we and, found that the, the people at legal aid boards across the country, for example, at that time, really didn't know what the initiatives were that were being tried by other other people working in that field. Yeah, just as and one I think example, that, that that can be. That, that applies even with, within jurisdiction, and I think it's worse than, than not knowing what's happening, is that in the past, what's tended to happen is that one sector has developed its solution that really simply moves the problem to somebody else. Hmm. And I think that the, the every jurisdiction in Canada, I think with perhaps one exception, has some kind of broadly representative access to justice group at the at the jurisdictional level. And that has brought together people who until fairly recently never spoke to each other. Right. And uh, this is representational within the profession, the judiciary and NGOs. Correct? No, or is it broader? It mo well the end of it you have to look at each jurisdiction. Okay. But in most of them it's considerably broader than that including, you know, non-lawyers in some cases, including people who have had experience as self-represented litigants. Good. Uh, in other Good. cases, yeah. members of the of the public uh, who have some interest or, or stake in the legal system. And certainly that was that was part of our recommendation that we needed to yeah. broaden the conversation. And, and, and I, you, I know, support the importance of that. You have been very supportive when we've talked about that issue as well. So yeah. that's great. And so I think that that's helpful. And then and then finally, uh, I think that over time, the six principles that we enunciated in the in our report are are getting traction. And the justice development goals that were enunciated in the report are becoming a bit of a rallying point for reform efforts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of the challenges is that we have a lot of people off doing what we might call, you know, smallish initiatives. Right. And it's important for them to feel and realize that they're part of a much bigger movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that the Justice Development Goals have made a contribution there. And I don't know whether you've had a chance to look at the status report that was put together 
for last March by the Canadian yes. Pharmaceutical Justice. But I have seen it. Yeah, it, there's a lot of there's a lot of activity, and I think the more we can a lot help, of initiatives. Yeah, help people uh, see themselves as part of some bigger and hopefully coherent effort, uh, the better the better off we'll be. All of that said, I don't think that there'll be the kind of change that I would want to see probably in my lifetime. Hmm. Bringing about fundamental reimagining of what the objectives and mechanisms of a, of a justice system ought to be is not the work that's going to be accomplished in a decade or probably even in two decades. So I think, I think I'm a realist in recognizing the limits of what we've, what we've done. I think though that that we have contributed to a very different understanding of both what the problems are and where the solutions to those problems are likely to be found. And just just to let people know, we are going to be posting the six principles um, and the justice development principles also on, on the webpage for this podcast, so people will be able to look at that, Tom. Um, you know, in a way, you know, my sense of what you're saying is that it is, no longer um, something that is always seen as a squeaky wheel or even a risky thing to work inside the justice system and to talk about this as a crisis. Would you say that's accurate? Yes. And, and I, I think I think the challenge we face is that, you know, a lot of the change experts say you need the flaming platform before mm-hmm. anything will, will happen. I'm kind of hoping we... We don't get quite that far into the, the flaming platform. Well, that's a, that's an enticing prospect. But but aside from the inflaming platform, which uh, we could we could debate, what if you could live forever? Are you seeing as you know two decades, three decades from now? What what is it that we can do better here? I think just the answer to that is just about everything. Um, <laughs> the uh, let's start with legal services. We have to reimagine at least a part of the legal services market because we have a huge part of that market that is, is virtually unserviced. And yes. you, you're the you're the world's expert on that. Um, and you know, and I think that until we really start to meaningfully attack that issue, we're we're going to have many problems because people do need professional legal assistance with many yes. things that have happened to them in their lives. Yes. And, and uh, I believe strongly that there's a whole suite of solutions. There isn't one solution. Uh, mm. There's a suite of solutions that can attack different parts of the legal services market, starting with legal aid, you know, ending up with full private retainers, but there are many things in between. In between. Yeah. We're starting to see some really good work around what that could look like and how that could, in fact, make some legal services available in an affordable way to people who of modest means who have some capacity to pay right. and in a way that makes sense for lawyers to earn a decent living uh, with their professional skill and judgment. So just, just looking at the legal services piece mm. of the access issue, there's a lot to be done there. Uh, in terms of courts and tribunals, again, I think we're we're starting to recognize many things, including 
the need to rebalance the procedure versus outcome um, equation. Mm. I think that, as I've said many times in talks, that I think many of us believe that our present system is process heavy and outcome light. Yes. And there's a a tremendous amount of work to be done to try to rebalance uh, that process, let alone getting the kind of triage and and referral to to appropriate services uh, at the front end of the system. And, you know, one of our study group reports or working group reports advocated a principle that resources should be given in priority to initiatives that will help resolve the most disputes in a fair and satisfactory manner at the earliest possible Right, yes. And our, our system is not doing that really to any significant extent. It certainly isn't. And then we look at family law. Um, I think just about everybody agrees that the, the family law system is seriously broken mm-hmm. pretty well everywhere in the country. Uh, again, there's, a, I think, a very significant openness to real change, but uh, getting it from wanting to do it to doing it is extremely uh, difficult. Well, on that point, um, you know, I remember... And this applies to everything you've already said, of course. I remember when I very first met you and heard you speak, um, and you were addressing one of the issues you've just talked about, which is how we redirect our procedural resources towards an early intervention and a just outcome that works for people instead of basically the opposite way around, which is what we seem to do at the moment. And I know, as as you do, how difficult it has been thus far to persuade people inside the system that procedure really does need to be simplified, and that doesn't mean just one less expert in the discovery process. It means real simplification. And, of course, Tom, you have this unique position now, I would say. You're a former Supreme Court of Canada Justice, you know, deeply and widely respected as a jurist. And as we were chatting before this started, now you're not any longer. And, you know, I wonder, given I know that while you were still sitting on the Supreme Court, you had to be, uh, you know, let's say more careful about what you did and what you said and where you appeared. And I know that sometimes I gave you heart failure with some of my suggestions, but you're always very good humored about that. But, but you're not any longer in that position. So you have a hugely influential and powerful voice. How, how are you going to use that influence, for example, to persuade people inside the system we really do need process simplification and not just tinkering? What I hope to be able to do is uh, continue with some of the national level work that I've been doing because I think, as I was really alluding to earlier, this is, this is not a sprint. This is uh, a, mm. a very long marathon. And I, one of my biggest worries is that people just get worn out and move on. So keeping that flame burning is, I think, the most important thing I can contribute to as an individual. Um, And then I also, at sort of the the other end of the 
the telescope, if I can put it that way. I have the opportunity now to be involved a little more at the, the ground level. I'm serving, for example, on the Access to Legal Services Committee of the Law Society of British Columbia. Um, Wonderful. And, and I have a role within uh, Borden Ladner Gervais with respect to pro bono work. Um, and so I, I now have the opportunity to see some of this up close and personal as opposed mm-hmm. to being focused on a more national cultural and values perspective. Uh, so I'm hoping that bringing those two together will, will assist. And I think finding uh, succession and recruiting more people to the cause is something that we are constantly doing. And I'm, I'm very uh, encouraged by the fact that there seem to be more and more people not only interested in this sort of work, but devoted to it. And younger people, too. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Tom, finally, I'm always curious to ask people that I talk to on the podcast, uh, this is sort of becoming a bit of a theme for us, I think, uh, about how their experiences have changed them or modified their views, because we all, I hope, keep evolving and I would really be curious to know if you could say a few things about how, in particular, your work on access to justice and your involvement in these issues now has changed how you think on any particular issues or any beliefs or values or anything else that's changed for you as a result of this experience? Probably a a lot of things, although oftentimes the things that change one the most you're not even aware <laughs> that's the point. aware of it it's more of an evolution than that you wake up one morning and you're different but um and you start asking everyone to call you tom for example that yes there you go um i think that at least I, c- I can mention a couple of things easily one is uh renewed belief in the importance of a strong and effective civil and family justice system and I think we all accept that as an article of faith. But in having done this work and having seen the, unfortunately, the effects of a system that is not always strong and not always effective mm. and the the impact that that has on people has redoubled my commitment to working to try to make that better. And sort of linked to that is an understanding that the system has to focus on outcomes. That it's, that, you know, I, I came to this as an old civil procedure teacher. I taught procedure for years. And you start, you know, it's easy to just love procedure for its own sake sometimes. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, yes. And, I, I mean, I, I certainly don't want to jettison the... Uh, commitment that we have to a fair process, you know, as everybody says, everybody's entitled to their day in court, but they also say you're not entitled to your month in court. Right, and And it's also very difficult for people, of course, who don't understand the procedure to use it effectively. I think they sometimes feel like they're at war with the procedure as much as they are with the other process. That's right, the process is standing in the way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let me just, if we have a moment, let me just tell you... Uh, one little story about that, and it was told to me by a, a, a court services worker, not by a lawyer or a judge. And there was a person who was representing herself in a, in a jurisdiction, 
um, which will remain nameless, and was very pleased at the level of support and um, assistance that she was able to get from the counter staff and the resources mm. available in the front office. And so the great day for the court appearance arrives and the person goes into court. And, of course, everybody's very curious as to know what happened. So in the fullness of time, out she comes. And uh, the counter staff sort of gather around and say, now, how did it go? And if I'm not really sh- the person says, I'm not really sure. Uh, all I know is that uh, we're adjourned to a sunny day. <laughs> and of course, those of us with at least yep, a little bit of yep. Latin will know that the judge must have said that the matter was adjourned sine die. Yes, because unfortunately, we still use Latin in in the in the in the courtroom. Yes, but that I just sort of try to think of that um, all the time because everybody was trying so hard to assist, and I'm sure the presiding judge did whatever he or he he thought was the best thing. But uh, you have someone who's been working hard for a particular moment in time, and not only does nothing happen, but the person emerges having really no understanding of what happened. And yes, that's that, a that, terrible failure of our system. And unfortunately, not, not an unusual experience uh, no, from what exactly. we hear at, at the project. Well, Tom, thank you so much for talking to me this morning. I feel if we had more time, there's probably many other questions people would like me to ask you, but I appreciate very much you giving us your time today, and uh, maybe you can come back again. All right. You're going to have in to the give next me 20, decades. You're going to have to give me 20 seconds, though, so. to thank you for your amazing work. Uh, you've become an international leader. Uh, particularly in the area more recently of the self-represented litigants. And your work is groundbreaking and deeply appreciated by everyone in the system with whom I'm familiar. So, Julie, uh, a big thanks and congratulations on your work. Thank you very much. And for that, I have to say thank you, Justice Cromwell. Thank you, Julie. Have a good day. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. So that story that uh, Mr. Cromwell told, the sunny day story, yes, that's such an interesting illustration of the disconnect, I guess, between the way the justice system operates and the way the public or regular people kind of interact with it. And as much as, you know, that's a little bit of an unusual story in that, as we know from our experience, most SRLs are not getting that That amount of help. Yes, Yes. from the court services staff. I think it's such a nice illustration, the use of the Latin phrase that, of course, she had no idea what that meant. Why would she? Why would most of us? Um, And yet it really meant that she did not understand what was going on. No matter how well prepared she had been. Exactly. And, you know, and I think it's important to say that we know that there are a lot of people working in court services very hard to Mm -hmm. equip people, but they are also generally overwhelmed. So it's very unusual for a self-represented litigant to feel like they have had enough help. They always want more because Mm -hmm. there's just so few resources to go around the volume of people needing the help. But even when she was well prepared and supported, she still came out with no idea of what had really occurred. And I think that reflex of using Latin expressions, which is so bred in the bone uh, in within within the 
judges and also amongst lawyers who are accustomed to these expressions. And it's only when we have ordinary people there saying, what language are you speaking and what does that mean that they're brought up short and realize, no, this really isn't making any sense to anybody. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that uh, Mr. Cromwell talked about, and he said that this is a phrase that he's been using um, fairly regularly lately to describe the justice system is process heavy and outcome light. Yes. And I thought that was a really great kind of way to sum it up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so noticeable amongst the people that we talk to all the time who are representing themselves that the piece of the experience that they struggle the most with is the procedure. Mm -hmm. And those are the places that self-represented litigants often feel they get tripped up on the procedure. And the idea that they are spending that amount of time and energy, as we know, many of them, trying to figure their way through the procedure is another reflection of what Tom was talking about, that this is such a process-heavy system. And I think that one of the things we have to take really seriously here, and, and he's certainly suggesting this, is that process simplification isn't just about shortening one part of the process or you know changing one form. It, it has to be something that really goes through the whole system. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we see another example of this where we have more and more courts that put their forms online, but the forms are very, very difficult for people to complete as well, and they don't have enough assistance for those. So, you know, until we can really do something about breaking the hold of our, as he put it, you know, our, our over-commitment to procedure, mm -hmm. we're never going to be able to give people really good outcomes that they can access in a relatively straightforward way. Right. So finally, um, one of the things, and I know you didn't talk about this a lot in the conversation, but... Um, I know it's one of the goals of the National Action Committee uh, is to talk to system users, talk yes. to SRLs and people who have actually been through the justice system about, just as we're saying, what can be done to improve the justice system. Yeah, what do they need? Yeah, and uh, we've talked about this a lot before, and as somebody, myself, uh, who is an outsider to the justice system, it really seems self-evident that if you're trying to improve a system, you would consult the system users. Yeah. But there do seem to be barriers to that. Well, I have been talking to people in different organizations um, across the country f ever since we started the National Self-Represented Litigants Project about the importance of this very point. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in a way, it seems so clear to us mm. that you really can't make progress here unless you do bring in the experiences of people who've been users. Not that they should then single-handedly rewrite the process, but they have to be a collaborative part of this. And there is a lot of, I, if I may say, lip service paid to the idea of talking to the public. But we know relatively little talking to the public actually going on. And I think it's worth asking ourselves, you know, honestly, well, why is that the case? And, you know, I have a few thoughts about that, having been in these trenches for a few years now. And I think one of them is that there is a, a, a comfort to talking with one another mm -hmm. when we all share the same vocabulary and understanding of the system. And what goes along with that, I think, unfortunately, is a 
minimization of the knowledge and expertise of people who aren't lawyers to give us really important feedback. Mm -hmm. Not just general feedback like the process was horrible, but very specific feedback that relates to changes that could be made in the justice system. And I think that we have to get over this idea of just having comfortable conversations with one another, be prepared to experience a little discomfort from people's frustration and emotion, and to value their expertise and input. We have, through this project, met amazing people, incredibly smart people who have all kinds of things that we could learn from in terms of process change. And I would really love to see us move the dial a little bit further from the lip service to the real practice on that. Well, let's hope that uh, 2018 sees us move that dial a little further. Well, let's hope so. So, we are posting on the website the 2013 National Action Committee report that contains the six guiding principles and also the justice development goals that Tom Cromwell referred to. So, that's on the website if you haven't had a look at that. It's an interesting document. We're also posting in the spirit of doing a little bit of end of year (laughs) evaluation here, uh, my end of year blog which has some reflections on steps we've made this year and other steps that we still need to make to really move forward. So as we mentioned at the top of this episode, uh, this is our season finale and we're taking a break through the holidays and through January to give us a chance to get caught up on some administrative things and to record new episodes of the podcast. So we will be back uh, at the beginning of February. I believe the first week of February is when we're planning to post our next episode. Um, And in the meantime, we want you to send us your ideas for Mm -hmm. episodes. Mm -hmm. We'd love to hear... Uh, thoughts on who you'd like to hear Julie talk to or just general topics, topic suggestions. Exactly. Um, And as well, we really want to continue to hear your family court questions for Justice Price because we will be recording the second part of Julie's conversation with him and that will be released at some point in the winter. So we've had some great questions so far and we'd love to hear more. That's right. And we wish you, Dana and I, everyone, a very happy holiday. And in the spirit of the festive season, we are going to sing our out theme. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da